It's the day after the Sabbath. The great feast of the Passover is only a few days away. The people of the city of Jerusalem are alive with excitement as families go to the market to choose their lambs for the celebration. Rumors are running wild this week in Jerusalem. They say that the Messiah is coming to establish his kingdom and will overthrow the Roman occupation. Some have been saying, we've waited so long, could this really be happening now? Another has reported that Jesus of Nazareth has ridden down from Mount Olivet on a donkey and he entered the city today as a conquering king does when he comes to offer peace. Another has said that this is exactly what the prophet Isaiah predicted 700 years ago when Isaiah wrote, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, a colt, the foal of an ass. Everywhere people are saying the same thing. Is prophecy being fulfilled in our day? Is the Lord's kingdom coming now? Welcome back to our second Internet Bible class this year. I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International, and I will be your teacher for this class. In our first class, we saw that Matthew's first chapter presented Jesus of Nazareth as the one whom Moses and the prophets spoke of as the long-awaited Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. In Matthew's second chapter, we learn that Jesus of Nazareth was was authorized by God to be the king of the greatest earthly kingdom this world will ever see, the kingdom from heaven. We learn that this coming kingdom was not a spiritual, ethereal kingdom in the heart, but a literal, physical, future earthly kingdom. We next learned that the king of this coming kingdom would be Jesus of Nazareth, for he is the only person in history to be qualified to be both Messiah and king. Let us now begin our study to understand how Jesus Christ could offer the kingdom to Israel. For Jerusalem and all of Israel, anticipation had been developing ever since John the Baptist had proclaimed, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom from heaven as we defined in the last class, is at hand. It is at hand. 
This is recorded in Matthew chapter 3 and in verse 2. You see, speculation had grown over whether this John of the wilderness was Elijah, the one who was to prepare the way of the Lord. For the prophet Malachi in chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 had foretold of this. So turn, if you would, with me to Malachi chapter 4. In Malachi chapter 4, we re read that he says in verse 4, Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Matthew now picks up the narrative after the 400 years of God's silence between Malachi and the book of Matthew. Matthew begins with the birth of Christ. While very significant to us, was at best a mere ripple in the life of the average Israeli of Herod's day. Except for those in Bethlehem, a king's birth in Bethlehem was merely a rumor with no basis. As such, life in Israel continued in its normal pace, day in and day out routine, for another 30 years. During this time, Romans ruled Israel with the aid of the Jewish leaders of the country. Now, these Jewish leaders, both the priests and the elders, had a very cozy establishment. As long as they avoided anything that might upset the status quo, the Romans allowed them to proceed and to govern. During this time, we know that Jesus grew and matured in Nazareth, because Matthew chapter 2 and verse 23 tells us that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. In Luke chapter 2 verse 52, it adds that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature during these days. You see, during those early days, the Lord developed physically but mentally as well. His adopted father, Joseph, had now died. Between the end of chapter 2 of Matthew and the beginning of chapter 3, approximately 30 years have passed. With Matthew chapter 3, the public ministry of Jesus of Nazareth begins. Three years would pass before he would present himself as the Messiah to Israel on that Sunday morning that we call Palm Sunday, which is recorded in Matthew 21. Back in Matthew chapter 3, the curtain rises as John the Baptist thundered over the hills of the Judean wilderness and it re-echoed throughout all of Israel. His message was no mere ripple this time, for we are told in Matthew that all of Ju Jerusalem, Judea, and the region around the Jordan came out to the wilderness to hear him. Matthew relates that in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 5. All the region round about Jordan. Masses came out to hear John, his announcement and his preaching. His announcement of verse 2 was more than just a herald giving out the news of the coming kingdom. Hearing him, many assumed that he was Elijah the prophet announcing the promised Messiah who would come to conquer Rome 
and restore Israel's kingdom. The desire to be a free nation and to expel the Romans had been a dream over many decades. That dream actually began back when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon on July the 18th of 586 BC captured the city of Jerusalem. Within a month, the temple was destroyed and the walls just broken down. Seven years prior to that destruction, the Shekinah glory had departed from the temple. That's God's presence in Israel in the temple. You might wish to read about this very slow and progressive departure of the Shekinah glory of God in Ezekiel 8 through chapter 11. Now, we offer a booklet on the subject that you can get it at our website bookstore, and it'll give you better understanding of that event as the Shekinah glory progressively left Jerusalem and Israel and ascended to heaven. Now, for most of the time from Babylon to Rome, Jerusalem was under Gentile control. It's important to understand why Israel was led off to captivity by the Babylonians. Please understand, they weren't victims of bad luck or military weakness or political failure. Not at all. There are three primary reasons that they showed that God was chastening Israel when he led them off into captivity. You see, the nation had turned from the covenant and from its laws that God had given to it so long ago. Dr. John Whitcomb offers the following summary of the three reasons for the captivity. First, King Jedekiah refused God's word spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, and he broke his oath to Nebuchadnezzar. You find this in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 12 and 13. Now, this breaking of the oath was important, for we read in Psalm 15, verse 4, written before Zedekiah now, Psalm 15, verse 4, reminds us also that, and I quote, He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not is one that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. Verse 2. You see, when we give our word as Christians, we must keep it, even if carrying out that word hurts us personally. King Zedekiah did not follow God's word of Psalm 15. He gave his word, but he, he reneged on it. So too, when we give our word, if it then turns out later, we find out it's going to cause us problems to keep it. We still keep it. The second reason Israel went into captivity is that the priests and the people adopted heathen customs. They polluted the temple and they scoffed at God's prophets. This is recorded in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 14 through 16. Again, the spiritual leaders and the people ignored God's word spoken through the prophets. The third reason was God's provision for the sabbatical years. Leviticus 25, 4 and 26, 34 specified every seventh year was to be a sabbatical year. These years have been neglected for centuries. Again, they ignored God's word and instruction. As Dr. Whitcomb says, and I quote, From Solomon to the Babylonian exile is a 400-year demonstration of God's faithfulness to his word in both promise 
and warning. He is a God who never changes. End quote. As the prophet Malachi stated in chapter 3 and verse 6, God never changes. I hope you realize how significant that little book of Malachi is, both to Israel and I think to us also. What we have here in Malachi is that God proved himself to be for Israel. He proves himself to be also for us as we heed his warnings and put our complete trust in his gracious promises. Paul reminds us today in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, where he writes, Now all these things, these things in the past, happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world or age, better translation, are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. And then he reminds us, God is faithful. Now let's go back to the history of Jerusalem. Following the conquering of Babylon by the Medes and Persians, Jerusalem continued under the Persian rule. Eventually, Alexander the Great conquered the Mede Persians and Israel fell under Macedonian or Greek rule. At the death of Alexander, the empire essentially divided into four kingdoms, with each ruled by one of Alexander's four generals. Those four generals were Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Antigonus. These four generals then became the rulers, if you will, of the Greek empire uh, over various regions and dividing the empire into four regions. Now Daniel had prophesied of this division. In Daniel chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, we read, and the rough goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king, first king. That great horn between his eyes is the prophetic indication of Alexander the Great. Now that being broken, in other words, that horn being broken, Alexander dying, whereas four stood up for it, for the kingdom. Four kingdoms shall stand up for it shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. In other words, those four generals will rise from the Greek empire, but they won't have the power that Alexander had because the regions, there's four regions are divided and they'll be fighting with each other in essence. From the third to the first century BC, two of these kingdoms challenged each other for power in what would be called the Syrian Wars. Israel was caught in these battles. It was located between the Seleucid Empire, with the capital in Syria, in the north, and the Ptolemaic Empire, with its capital in Egypt. So here's Israel in between Syria and Egypt. Between 319 and 302 BC, Jerusalem would change hands seven times as these two powers fought back and forth. 
By 198 BC, Antiochus III conquered Jerusalem for the last time, and the Seleucids controlled the land. These wars resulted, though, in a divided Judaism. That meant that Judaism divided between a pro-Syrian element and a pro-Egyptian element. Each influenced, ultimately, the spiritual life of the Jewish people. The division was much more than political, for these groups reflected the tension between a seeking a Hellenistic or Greek lifestyle and those seeking to observe the covenantal law. God's covenant would rule. This group following the covenant or trying to were called the Hasidim. As tensions rose to an unacceptable level, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid king, intervened and instituted severe persecutions for those obedient Hasidim Israelites. He stopped sacrifices. He discontinued special allowances to the Jewish people in terms of the laws, and he came down hard in persecuting the Jewish people. Now, in reaction to his persecution and his abominations, the Maccabeans arose and ultimately were successful in establishing a semi-independent state called, called the Hasmonean Kingdom that lasted from 175 B.C. until 134 B.C. Unfortunately, over time, the kingdom became weak as a result of murders, intrigues, and family jealousies, thereby opening the door to the rising power of a new empire, that of the Roman Empire. You see, in 161 B.C., Judah of the Maccabeans sought a Roman alliance to drive out the Greek or Hellenistic movements in Israel. History records this as a league of amity and confederacy with the Romans and would be but one of many steps leading to eventual Roman domination of Israel. So you see, Israel, in a sense, invited the Roman Empire into the land of Israel to, co to deal with the Seleucid Empire. This Roman power focused upon the Seleucid rulers, and in doing this, the Seleucids were distracted from ruling upon Israel directly. This made possible a brief period of true Israelite independence. The independence ended in 37 BC when the last Hasmonean high priestly king was executed and the pro-Roman Herod the Great came to power with Israel as a puppet or a client state under Roman control. In 40, 40 BC, the Roman Senate declared Herod the Great as the king of the Jews. Yes, this is right. This is the same Herod of Matthew chapter 2, the one who completed the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. It is against this background that the people of John's day looked for a restored kingdom and the end of foreign rule.
Now, John the Baptist was not trying to stir up a human-inspired revolt, but rather had been sent by God to bring, notice this, a command from the God of Israel to the people of Israel. This is reflected in the grammar of Matthew chapter 3 in verse 2, when John proclaims, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That repent ye is a command. <laughs> oh yes, here we go again with grammar. I'm sorry, but we have to remember grammar teaches us. God can use grammar. In this case, the word repent is a present active indicative verb that it means it is a present, current, ongoing command to the people of Israel. Not just a, well, I hope you'll repent. It was a command, repent ye. God is not asking them to be sorry for their sins, for that would actually be a different Greek word. No, he is calling for a change of direction. You see, he wanted them to understand more than personal repentance from their sins, though I believe that was part of it. We read actually in verse 6, and they were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. You see, baptism in that day meant you were aligning with, you were joining a specific group, in this case, joining with John the Baptist. And as part of the conviction of his preaching, they confessed their sins. Now, obviously, they recognized their own personal guilt, if you will, in Israel's wrong path and wrong living of the day. You see, these people were the first sparks in an awakening to Israel's national sins. This was a call by John for them to change their collective direction as a nation in such a way that would allow the kingdom to come to Israel. Through them would begin a groundswell of repentance. All Israel could repent and then the kingdom could come. Now, this was a new idea to Israel. You see, they assumed they would be citizens of the restored kingdom simply because they were Jewish and lived in the land of Israel. For they would say, were they not the children of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to whom the kingdom was promised? Therefore, citizenship would be automatic once the Romans were overthrown. Well, what would they have to do? Why, why should they do anything? You see, they thought God did not require anything of them. But John and later, the Lord and the disciples would make it clear that national repentance was foundational to the restoration of the kingdom. Let me say that again. National repentance was foundational to the restoration of the kingdom. These people did not realize how far they had drifted from God's law and the requirements laid down by the prophets. For Malachi had been God's warning to them of this very thing. God clearly intended that John the Baptist would cause the people to remember what Malachi had told their ancestors about the nation's spiritual life. God had warned Israel to correct his ways back in Malachi. Turn with me again to Malachi chapter 3. Now look um, at verse 7. Even from the days of your fathers, 
ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me. The return is the same idea as the word repent. Unto me, and I will return or turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. You see that? They are to turn to the Lord. The Jewish people of John's day, like those of Malachi, found God's covenant unimportant. They lived as they wish. They worshipped as they thought was right. And they simply ignored God's word. Notice in verse 7, Malachi has the people then saying at the end of the verse, Wherein shall we return? <laughs> why, why, why should we turn? The whole idea here is where or why should we change our course? It's the very foundational idea of John's command of repent, to change the course. You see, the people were sure their direction was acceptable to God, and God said, no, it wasn't. He said it in Malachi. He says it again up to the day of John the Baptist. Malachi further defines the people's present course in verse 14. He says, Ye have said, It is vain to serve the Lord. And what profit is it? What profit is to serve the Lord? That we have kept his ordinance? Eh, what can we gain? That we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy? Yea, they that work wickedness are set up? Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered, was the attitude of the people. But in the very next chapter, in verse 4, God not only lays out the conditions for his coming with his kingdom, but ties it to a sign. Look at verse 4. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This requirement had not changed since the day of Moses at the birth of national Israel. God made a covenant or agreement between himself and his people. As a nation, he would bless them if they obeyed his commandments, but he would curse them or chasten them if they rebelled against them. Back there with Moses, who we were reminded, because he says at the law of Moses, that means at the giving of the, Mo uh, the law, he reminds us what the people were saying. They should have all thought of this. Because the people shouted in agreement at once, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. It's recorded in Exodus 19.8. And several times later in the history of Israel, they said, we will do all the Lord commands. Recognizing eventually they would turn away from him, from God, God laid out the conditions for restoring the blessings of the covenant to a wayward nation. In a very familiar verse to many of us, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, we read, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, yes, that's the same change of direction, from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, in our Lord's day on earth, Israel had not turned or changed direction from their ways. For the kingdom to come, they needed to recognize that God's restoration was conditional upon their response to his command to repent.
to change direction. Change can begin with individual people first responding. With each individual's response, a groundswell could grow that would culminate in Israel's return to covenant living according to God's covenant. In John's day, the nation continued its daily life as if God's covenant wasn't important. And as we will learn, their leaders acted in the same way. Three years after God's command for Israel to repent, we come to that unique day when Jesus Christ descended from the Mount of Olivet to Jerusalem. For those in Jerusalem, this was the day when God's return could begin. Remember now, according to the covenant, all Jewish men had to be present for the pilgrimage feasts. There are three pilgrimage feasts each year. Passover was one of those pilgrimage feasts. So because all the Jewish men had to be present for it, Jerusalem was filled with Jewish representatives from all over the kingdom. Now, not only was this a great holiday as well as a spiritual event, but it also was a very talked about occasion this time because the most talked about spiritual teacher was approaching the temple site. And the people wondered, what would happen when he would come to the temple? You see, the people, sensing the fulfillment of prophecy, had cast down branches before him. And in verse 9 of chapter 21, we read, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This reference to the son of David is an obvious reference to the Israel's greatest king of the past and the knowledge and belief that the Messiah would be his descendant. With a single voice, the people proclaimed in verse 11, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. As he approached, they watched him closely. But what followed was unexpected and left many wondering. Instead of challenging Rome and its authority by declaring himself as king, Jesus strode purposely into the temple and he challenged the money changers and those who bought and sold. We're told that in verse 12. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple, overthrew the tables of the money changers, the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall not be called the house, shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. You see, this too was to remind them of the words of the prophet Isaiah 56, found in verse 7, where he says, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. At the height of these acts of authority by Jesus, he turned to those who were nearby who were blind and lame, and notice what he does in verse 14. 
And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And what did he do? He healed them. To many that day, these two actions seemed contradictory, confusing. On the one hand, such violence. On the other, such compassion. If only they had studied and heeded and remembered prophecy. They would have understood who Jesus was and what he was doing. This would have been a fitting climax and answer to three years of wondering if Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah. Could he be the promised one? Back in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, it's recorded that even John the Baptist had questioned if Jesus was the promised Messiah. For like many others, John knew Isaiah's prophecies, Isaiah 35, for example, that taught how to recognize the Messiah. For in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, we read, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Uncertain, John sent two of his followers to ask Jesus if he was indeed the Messiah. And here's what Jesus replied. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are, cl lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. This is recorded in Matthew 11, verse 5. You see, for John and his followers, and for those in Jerusalem who understood prophecy, the evidence was clear. Jesus of Nazareth was the long-awaited Messiah. Back in chapter 21, the chief priests and scribes, however, refused to recognize him and were displeased with the crowd's response. Look at verse 15. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. <laughs> Can you believe that? Instead of rejoicing, they viewed this development as a crisis in their authority and power. Not only was it a challenge to their authority, but it also threatened to cause a confrontation with the powerful and fearsome iron heel of Rome. You see, they were being forced to choose. Forced to choose between retaining their prideful position of religious authority over Israel and continuing to submit to the Roman government or, now get this, risking all by recognizing Jesus as Messiah and King and trusting him to deliver them from Roman rule. Much to their relief, before they had to act, Jesus left the city at the height of the day's events and he returned to Bethany. We're told in verse 17, and he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and he lodged there. However, the crisis of Palm Sunday was not averted, but merely delayed. Thank you. 
The confrontation and crisis that had begun on Palm Sunday reached its zenith on Tuesday, two days later, when the Israeli leadership again was faced by the question of Jesus' identity. Looking for even more evidence, the chief priests and elders questioned his authority, as recorded in Matthew verse 23. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching, and said, By what authority dost thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? Unlike the people's main concern for immediate physical deliverance from Roman rule, as it happened in the time of the Maccabees, Israel's leadership recognized the true significance of what Jesus was doing. They understood that he was claiming more than to just be a king, but that he was claiming spiritual authority over them as well as the people. With their authority now challenged, they reacted by asking him these two key questions. By what authority dost thou these things? And more importantly, who gave thee this authority? They didn't realize that the significance of Jesus' answers and their response would determine more than just for themselves, but it would determine the future of Israel and would change world history. As is true with all nations, if the people remain silent, the leadership will speak for them, and all then must accept the consequences of the leader's decisions. For this reason, according to John Wilford, and I quote, as Jesus drew near to the cross, his message became more and more directed to the representatives of the Jewish nation, end quote. The next five chapters of Matthew, called the Olivet Discourse, not only answer the Jewish leaders' questions concerning Jesus' authority, but also establish his ultimate dominion over the entire world. Rather than answer the nation's leaders directly, for in verse 37 we read, And they answered Jesus, said unto him, We cannot tell when he questioned them. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Instead, the, the Lord delivers a very powerful message to Israel. A message that is personal, is somber, is terrible, is fearful, as an accusation that he quotes a portion of Psalm 118 to them. It's recorded in Matthew in verses 21, verses 42 to 44. Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation or a people, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Jesus spoke these words 
to the representatives with the authority now of the prophet of God. We know they well understood the message and that it was for them because in verse 45 it says, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables, his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. While the people recognized Jesus to be a prophet, that is, one of many prophets, they and the leaders did not recognize him to be the prophet that Matthew in chapter 13, verse 57, had indicated would come, that the prophet would be the promised one, sent by God the Father, sending his own son to the nation. At this point, with the background of our first class, we're ready to look at the key to the Olivet Discourse. That key is really begun here in chapter 21. Because our understanding of Matthew 21 through 25 is helped, though, if we see it as a judicial process in a court of law. Let us consider the nation of Israel as being on trial as the defendant. The Lord Jesus Christ, now not the spiritual leaders, is the accuser or plaintiff, and God the Father is the judge. As with any courtroom, judgment must follow a specific path if a just and righteous outcome is to be released. Essentially, there are five steps to the judicial process. They are, first of all, the accusation, and that's Matthew 21. They had never read the scriptures. There's the testimony of the witnesses. That's Matthew chapter 22. The indictment, we will find, will be Matthew 23. The judgment will be proclaimed in Matthew 24 with the desired outcome, the plaintiff satisfied, the accused restored in Matthew 25. So in other words, our next chapters are broken down along with this judicial process. Accusation, Matthew 21. Testimony of witnesses, Matthew 22. The indictment will be Matthew 23. Judgment and the desired outcome will be 24 and 25. Let us now look at the accusation. In this section, we're going to examine this accusation against the generation of Israelites and religious leaders of Jesus' day that were present there on that Tuesday. Instead of answering their questions, Jesus pointed them to what should have been familiar scriptures by saying, Did ye never read in the scriptures? This is God's accusation from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apparently now, these people were either ignorant of the scriptures or they had deliberately ignored them. And as a consequence, they did not recognize the Messiah when he came or the kingdom that he offered to them. So that we may be never guilty of the same, let us review the scriptures that the leaders and the people had failed to read. By doing that, we get a better understanding how this event really indicated a critical crisis point and the Olivet Discourse that would result from it. We saw that list of scripture in our last lesson. As the list of identifying characteristics for the Messiah expanded, remember, the number of individuals that met all the characteristics diminished further 
and further until only one candidate, the Lord Jesus Christ, met it all. To summarize quickly that list, he had to be a male descendant of Eve, be virgin born, and therefore without Adam's sin nature, bring God's presence to humanity, Emmanuel, be a descendant of Seth, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. Eventually, he would serve as both high priest and king of Israel. He would start out lowly and abased, and later would be exalted. He would bring in the glorious millennial kingdom to the earth when he appears. He would have to be a descendant of King David, be born in Bethlehem, and be eternal, having no beginning or end. As a result of these qualifications, there could be no other Messiah candidates than the Lord Jesus Christ. For you see, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and all genealogical records in 70 AD. With the loss of those records, no one could verify the claim that he fulfills the ancestral requirements for the Messiah. Therefore, because by 70 AD no more records, the Messiah had to appear in Israel before 70 AD, present himself during the days when Israel was without a king, but before the destruction of Jerusalem. That could only be, and was only, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. A final thought. As we've been studying this, we have to see that all in Israel who read, studied, and heard the scriptures, there was no excuse for them not recognizing the Messiah when he came. Through Matthew, God wants us to understand that both the spiritual leaders and the people of Israel were without excuse. Through Moses, God had warned Israel that those who disregarded the future prophet's words would be held accountable, accountable. Moses was speaking of Jesus in his prophetic role during his time on earth when he said in Deuteronomy 18, verse 19, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall not hearken unto my words, which he, and the reference is clear in that passage, the Messiah, shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. In Matthew chapter 1 and 2, we had a summary of fulfilled prophecy. As we're going to see in the Olivet Discourse in our next lesson, the Lord warned Israel in the tribulation, beware of false messiahs. It's important to note that with all the scriptural qualifications and signs for identifying the true Messiah, they were available and they are available. No one today should be misled to find follow a false messiah. A clear study of the scriptures will keep anyone from false teachers and false messiahs. Yet we'll read that during the tribulation, many will also be deceived. A final thought. Israel's spiritual leadership and people failed to recognize the messiah when he came the first time. Why? Because they did not know the scriptures or they didn't heed them. As a consequence, they did not recognize the Messiah when he came offering his kingdom that would be ruled by God the Son. This is the accusation against the nation of Israel. 
Now, in many churches today, a similar accusation could be brought, for the preaching and teaching of all Scripture has been largely neglected, and the authority of God's Word is being denied. Now, there are exceptional churches, but they are few and far between. Few churches today are looking for Christ's return and His kingdom. Although genuine Christians, remember this, will be taken out of the world at the rapture before the tribulation, they will then, we will then return with Jesus Christ the Messiah to the earth at his second coming. But many of those Christians will be taken up at the rapture. True believers will be taken up at the rapture. They are ignorant of God's plan and purposes, and they'll be surprised at what happens. Because there is such spiritual ignorance today, both in churches and outside of churches. I'd like to end this lesson with the warning that Paul gave to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. And then he says, all scripture, now that includes Revelation, all the prophets, as well as the Gospels and the Epistles. All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee, says Paul, therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Doctrine's crucial. For notice, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. Paul's final warning to Timothy, to the church in the latter days, is a warning for us. I hope you have found this lecture useful and helpful. We've enjoyed producing it, and I've enjoyed teaching it. Please join us again on March 22nd, when we will webcast another lesson in this series on the book of Matthew. Remember now, all of our classes are available 24-7 on demand at either our website, www.congdenministries.org, or www.sundaystreams.com slash go slash CMI. And of course, on our Roco television channel. Now, if you want to submit a question about something I've taught this evening, please send it to me via email at questions at congdenministries.org. I will take your questions and give answers in a special 15-minute webcast in a week or so. Please be sure to check our website for updates on new programs being offered. 
We hope to make several of them available in the next few weeks and months. We will plan to cover Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Battle of Gog and Magog, Russia, and we'll be updating on current events with respect to Russia and Israel. We're going to do a background briefing on Turkey, showing why it's involved in Syria, Iran, and Israel. And in the near future, we'll also begin a series on New Calvinism and where it is headed and why it is so dangerous to your church, your missionaries, and evangelism. And we hope to cover many other useful topics in this coming year. We again thank you for praying for our ministry and our webcasts. See, without your prayers and the Lord's answering them, we could not bring these to you. We also thank those of you who have helped support us financially to produce these programs. Our monthly cost for the internet and the service that broadcasts our programs is a significant added expense to our ministry. Your gifts enable us to have this expanded ministry. If you'd like to donate to help these broadcasts, please go to our website and click on the Donate button. We again thank you for your help, encouragement, and prayers. Please join us again next time. Until then, may the Lord bless you mightily, and we will either see you here or in the air. Yeshua returns to Israel From the right hand of God In eternal majesty and Scattering Satan's night Every eye shall see His pierced hands and deity When Yeshua returns to Israel